Hello, everybody. This is Rachel. And I'm Peter. And, and this, this is, is All for Animals. animals. <laughs> okay, everybody. So today, I'm going to be talking about the history of dog grooming. And this is one that obviously is a topic of great interest to us, Peter, but I'd imagine there's going to be a lot of other groomers out there that are interested in learning how their career came to be. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, so let's dive on in. So there's surprisingly little information out there about the actual origins of dog grooming, which I found really strange given how much information there is on just about every other topic related to man's best friend. But the earliest solid evidence of well-groomed dogs seems to start in about the Elizabethan era of history when Queen Elizabeth I was ruling England, and that was 1558 to 1603. But even that, there wasn't really much in the way of description of how it was actually being done. There was just kind of evidence in paintings and etchings and whatnot that would show dogs all clean and beautifully quaffed but no like manuals on how to get them that way or anything like that and I found that really strange there's even like some etchings of women actually shearing dogs with scissors but that's literally like the extent of it so after the Elizabethan era, we move into 17th century France, where we finally get the f first official record of actual dog grooming parlors. Now, during this time, King Louis XV was reigning over France, and because of his fondness for poodles, they essentially became the dog to have and have since actually become the national dog of France. And because of their strong association to France, a lot of people mistakenly believe the poodle originated there. But do you know where they originated, Peter? I do not. No. They originated in Germany. Is it really? Are they a German? Yes. Breed? Interesting. Now, yes. are we talking about the standard poodle as well? Now, King Louis XV was especially fond of toy poodles. Okay. But the standard poodle, I, f I feel like all three breeds are fairly well represented in, like, the French pop culture. Sure. Right. So, a fun fact here, actually. King Louis uh, had a favorite poodle, and his name, and I don't speak French, people. I took a little bit of Spanish and sign language in high school, so I may butcher this name. But his favorite poodle's name was Filou which means trickster in French. And I thought that was really cute. <laughs> yeah, and fitting because poodles yes. are smart and they know it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, they're they're wily little boogers. <laughs> yeah. In the best way possible, of course. It is kind of widely assumed that the pet grooming was happening either in, like, the marketplaces where people would trade and buy essentials and whatnot, or even in the palaces of the the royal families and those of you know the the higher breeding as as one might say <laughs> the the beautiful complex show styles that poodles are most widely known for actually originated from groomers known as demoiselles tasked with creating a style that would coordinate with the incredibly intricate huge tall hairstyles 
done on the powdered wigs worn by all of the upper crust and everything. And I thought that was really cool too. Now, and do you know, like the the traditional continental poodle cut, why it's the way it is? Why why the coat is left in certain spots? Like you yes. know, obviously you get their braces. You do know why? Oh yeah. So okay. they wanted to reduce drag as much as possible on the dog, whether they were working in water or in like underbrush on land. Um, So they wanted to keep that coat and skin clean. They wanted to keep them fast and agile, but they also wanted to protect the vital organs and joints. So those little palms and bracelets, they do actually serve a purpose. And that is to keep those joints nice and warm and safe while they are running through mucky water and right. you know bramble bushes and all of that stuff and the uh jacket is to help protect all of their actual organs and also help retain that body heat as well right well and i don't think a lot of people know that the poodle is actually a hunting breed yeah they they are always shocked when I tell them that, but that's that all dates back to why the poodle feet came about and why uh-huh. the bracelets and the jacket um, and the entire um, historically correct the continental cut became a thing and, and why that's there's a purpose behind it. I hear people all the time when I'm talking about poodles, and they're like, "Well, I just I don't like the poodle yeah. feet and the poodle face." I'm like, "It doesn't have to be that way." Historically, the reasons that way is yeah. what you've just described to keep. The joints and the organs warm while they're working through, you know, brush and water and all that good stuff. So, yep. Glad we could touch base about that. And I'm actually going to do an episode. I'm going to do an episode here soon about kind of the origins of of the, the jobs that dogs came to have, you know, since now dogs are mostly seen as companion animals that just keep us company and we love them and everything. But... People often forget that they were originally used for all kinds of daily tasks. I want to get into some of how the most popular breeds were working and and the jobs that they would do to help us humans and just kind of the evolution of how they got to where we are now. Absolutely. It'd be a great thing to discuss. You're exactly right. Um, uh, even the large breeds, you know, Great Pyrenees is almost seen more as a house pet. And typically they like to be out um, in a big pasture or, you know, a barn. Oh, yeah. They are the stereotypical livestock guardian dog. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. So um, moving more back into the history of grooming more specifically, I know that you're correct. There's not a lot of information out there. I know of like one Facebook group that I'm in with some, you know, um, historic photos um you know mm-hmm. um, oh i love those photos yeah I want... they're they're super nostalgic and super cute and i find it really fascinating that the main way to dry like a full-size standard poodle was just a hair dryer i mean could you yeah. imagine the amount of time that would take you're talking two two hours to dry the dog i would imagine and it's funny that you mentioned that because it wasn't until the 1940s that the grooming salons as we know them like today were actually born before that there were teeny tiny doggy barber shops as they called them with very minimal space tools and equipment and they were actually commonly referred to as quote-unquote sweatshops 
because of the lack of temperature control, small space, and very ineffective cage dryers that they would use. And they were like the ones that everybody is always so scared of now because they would pump so much heat into those cages and it wouldn't really be safe for the dogs or the groomers working in that little bitty space that was just becoming overpowered with all of that heat. Right. I think it's really easy for today's modern groomers, and I know I'm super guilty of this, to forget just how much progress has been made to make our jobs so much safer and easier. Like, think about how badly your hands hurt after that long, drawn-out scissor cut, and that was the only option before electric clippers were invented, but dogs were being groomed long before electric clippers were invented. Right. Well, and it's funny you say that, because I will... You know, I'm guilty of it, too, not really appreciating how far the, the industry and the trade has become. Sure. But, you know, I will sit there sometimes. And, you know, when I'm just using little tricks of the trade, I don't know if you do this, Rachel, when I'm drying legs, um, tails, ears, and stuff like that, I'll take a hand towel and blow the, the power dryer into the towel to kind of catch the moisture as it oh, sure from the coat. Yeah. And I think, you know... to. 30 years ago, someone figured out this works and passed it on to this groomer who passed it on to this groomer who passed it on to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And just little things like that. And we're not even talking about the big picture of, you know, dogs being groomed before clippers were even created or formulating proper shampoos, you know, that work individually with coats and stuff like that. It's all those little tips and tricks of the trade. (laughs) Yeah. My biggest thing is ear cleaning. Because I'm sure back then that must have gotten pretty overlooked. I don't know that there was a whole lot you could do, especially, you know, how were safety restraint devices back then, you know? Um, See, there's the not a, it. I couldn't find any information on that. And I was really, bummed. yeah, interesting. I wanted because, you know, what kind of muzzles did they use? Did they even, you know, was that is something there that was they like even... nothing about the actual nitty gritty of here's what used to happen on a daily basis in dog grooming salons in the 1800s or whatever i was really hoping i could answer those questions for you but there is like nothing it was really hard the most interest or like the most in-depth description i could find was where they would essentially tell people have soap ready we're gonna get your dog in the nearby lake, then soap him up and send him back for a swim before I go and dry him up. So I don't even know if they were necessarily like full on bathing the dogs or if it was just here, go have a rinse off in this nasty creek and we'll dry you after that kind of thing. Right. That was the most in-depth info I could find on, on like the process. Well, right, but you have to think back then what was the standard for, you know, human sanitation, right? Oh, I mean, sure. There was hardly any. <laughs> right, exactly. So I can I can imagine the reason a lot of this information is not out is because grooming just wasn't appreciated like it is now. Yeah. And even then, I get people all the time that they, like, I try to explain to them, like, my job's super physically demanding. And yeah. And I'm like, you're playing with dogs and cats all day. Hey, yeah. Girl, I wish. Yep. <laughs> so, it's funny you say yeah, that, so too, I, about, like, our trade being very much more, like, respected now than it was then. Because Mm -hmm. that didn't really happen until about like the mid 1950s. Oh, wow. When the population of pet dogs and cats just absolutely skyrocketed. 
in the the mid 1950s is when it actually became like really popular for people just to have a pet period like demand the demand yes exactly yeah so it turned our our pet grooming industry into a much more respected and very needed trade because you know if you're gonna have these animals in your house cleanliness is going to be very important so all of these people that are now having animals in their home they they need to have somebody to be able to keep them clean and tidy for them so enter dog grooming (laughs) absolutely and the numbers as far as pet populations have only grown since then so about half of all u.s homes have pets as of 2019 but everybody in any kind of pet industry knows that that number also drastically increased during the pandemic yes so it's a lot more than that and it honestly it just it makes me really sad how little is known about the early days of our trade and it feels like a huge missed opportunity to appreciate just how far we've come right with the whole profession and all of the skills and like you were just saying like all of the little tips and tricks of the trade the things that that other groomers pass down to the next generation of groomers and everything there's right there's something to be said for that kind of heritage if you will well and just how how did we create you know such efficient grooming tactics and yeah you know i mean hell even myself i'm personally still trying to get faster and more precise Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of learning as I go. And I couldn't even imagine how far the trade itself has came, you know, in the last 50 years. And sure. so that is kind of a shame that there's not a whole lot of information. But again, I think that all leads back to before the 1950s. This was seen as more of like a, a hobby almost or not even maybe even just like, you know, kind of something to do. It was mostly just like completely practical back then and it was like even as you mentioned earlier like the vintage photos of dog grooming the the results look drastically different than they do today because of the different uh equipment that was available as well as just the different demands Mm -hmm. so it was mostly unless you were like a huge well-to-do uh, or, or like royal person, your pet grooming needs were going to mostly be like, hey, I need less hair on his belly so he doesn't get caught up in bramble bushes. And right. hey, my poodle's joints need to be protected while he's going off and retrieving ducks for me and stuff right. like that. It was less about style and more about, you know, what was practical. Practicality, time, yeah. This wasn't just keeping a dog a house pet from being stinky in my home exactly. this is keeping a working dog comfortable while it's doing its job exactly and trying to minimize the possibility of injury to the dog because then that would mean that they would be without their little hunting buddy that they really needed in order to help bring home their their food source so grooming pets kind of falls into that a little bit murky area where it's both a skilled trade and an art form Every groomer has their own style and preferences and techniques to deliver that beautiful finished haircut for every pet that they work with. And I found that today there are over 120,000 grooming slash boarding businesses in the U.S. For some reason, they get lumped together quite a bit, even though they are completely different businesses. 
but uh, they also rake in a whopping $9 billion every year. And that, again, is from uh, those statistics uh, in 2019. So we know that it's going to be a little different now, but still in the same vein. It's a huge and ever-growing industry. Well, and mind you, even before the pandemic, as you just discussed earlier, you know, obviously with more pets in homes, even before the pandemic, there has just been a global shortage of pet groomers for God knows how long. Oh, yeah. There's never enough of us to meet the demand. Yeah, no. And they keep making more of them. And obviously the, the rescues are filling up um, and things like that. And the demand's always going to be there. It's an ever-growing industry. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about these these jobs, you know, what job what jobs are, are really foolproof for you know harder economies and you know what what's going to survive a recession and what gets overlooked often are the pet industry jobs because a lot of people their pets are their kids and and you know no matter how rough the economy gets they figure out how to care for their pets and we're right there to help them out so um so yeah so i also decided i needed to look up a few more statistics And I'm very proud to be part of one of the very few industries that are predominantly run by women. About 85% of all dog groomers are women and only 15% are male. So sorry, Peter, you're in the minority. (laughs) Yeah. You know what's funny about that, though? So every single salon I've worked at, I was the only male, Um, which I'm okay with. I vibe with females. They're fun. And I don't know, I'm a lefty too, so I'm the real minority here. I'm a male groomer and I'm a lefty. You're seriously groomer. just like every different kind of weird that a groomer can be because you also yeah. don't have a dog. Yeah, I know. I'm a dogless, left handed male dog. You groomer. are just Good bucking Lord. tradition in every what? way. My blades guy gives me. <laughs> yeah, my blades guy gives me a lot of shit for it because he'll, you know, he just thinks. The, the stuff he'll recommend for a right-handed groomer, like the different, like the piano blades, or I'm sorry, the piano shears and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't like them. And he's like, well, it's you're just one of those weird lefties. And I'm like, yep. you're exactly right. So it'd be something just else. Just a great big pile of weird. So, so yeah, um, since my first salon, since my first animal job, I was like the only guy. And I'm just yeah. so used to it. <laughs> I don't even think twice about it anymore. But that's a great statistic to share. I'm glad that you did. Yeah. Um, touch on that one so the next thing that i wanted to talk about is how people become groomers because as you know there are a bunch of different ways and our industry doesn't really have a set requirement for how you can learn to groom a lot of people choose to learn at a corporate salon where they send you off to an academy and provide you with your first set of tools and then there are also designated grooming schools you can pay to go to apprenticeships under an already established groomer who really knows their stuff. And then there's also groomers who are completely self-taught. And each way of learning will have its own pros and cons. But personally, I absolutely loved learning as an apprentice. So Peter, if you had the option to choose a different type of education, would you? I don't think so. Um, I'm still... I... uh... I went to a private academy. I paid privately okay. for the the you know the, the education, my first set of equipment. Um, I love my teacher. We still talk all the time. She's a sweetheart. I come and visit her. I wouldn't change a damn thing. But 
it's not the only avenue you can take. Um, and I'm glad that you brought this up because there's not it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. And mind you, I would say that the academy I went to was kind of like an apprenticeship because there was only like one to two students she would teach at a time. So that's pretty one-on-one, like an apprenticeship. Yeah, your academy was very different. It was way more like an apprenticeship. It kind of like rode that line between the two. And then the self-taught groomers um, don't get enough respect, in my opinion, because they, I mean, I see some of these self-taught groomers and you didn't tell me that I would never know. And I mean, they're doing pattern cuts and skirts better than I ever will. Well, all methods of learning are totally valid. As long as all pet groomers know, you know, the basics, then it doesn't really matter where you get the rest of your information. As long as you're putting the animal's safety and comfort first, then go. I mean, you do you. It is fantastic if you are able to learn like that. Well, and you have to be passionate. I think that's how most of these self-taught groomers make it. Um, so quickly and they can just scale their education and their style so quickly is they're just passionate. They want to learn. Um, and the challenging haircuts or the more frustrating haircuts where you're like, I can't figure out why the fuck this coat's not doing what I need it to do. Those are the ones you benefit from, um, the most. And furthermore, um, I know that this is changing in the federal government, but you don't need a license to be a groomer, at least in the state of Illinois, you don't need to be licensed. It's actually federally, there is no license requirement in any state. Okay, I didn't know if it were state or federal, how that worked. No, the only thing that they can require is like some states require a business license in order for you to own any kind of business. Sure. So the basics, at least in my opinion, any person working with animals obviously is going to need to know first aid and CPR because accidents will happen. Animals are going to get hurt. And there's always the possibility of some kind of emergency. So that CPR training is going to come in real handy one day. And, I mean, you, you're definitely going to want to be prepared. <laughs> right. Well, that and the Heimlich. You want to know the Heimlich. Because yes. it can be very, very different depending on the breed. Sure. Like how CPR is literally the same with humans on a brachio dog. I yeah. don't know if you knew that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So basic anatomy is also very important. You need to know where the different bones are starting, the different muscle groups and everything, because they are referenced in especially patterned cuts. So, you know, if you're talking about a, a schnauzer, or, geez, a schnauzer cut, they're going to reference that, that thigh muscle, the top of the shoulder, all of these places they're used as markers for you to know where a haircut starts and ends right. and everything. So you need to have that basic anatomy knowledge. And then some, at the very minimum, basic animal behavior and training skills because no dog is ever just going to come to you being a perfect little unicorn, thrilled and happy to do everything exactly as you need them to for a groom. Right. You're going to have to teach them how to stand properly for you. You're going to have to teach them how to get in and out of the tub, all of those types of things. They're going to need guidance to just know that they're okay and that they're in safe hands. And with that, and you then, need patience. Oh, yeah. I think so that every much. groomer knows that. I hear that all the time people that you know they get into the industry and they get burnt out in a year and it's like well i just don't have the patience for this yeah it takes a lot of patience to do what we do yeah and then sanitation is going to be a huge one as well where obviously 
if you don't have a clean environment, you cannot possibly be guaranteeing the safety of your of the pets in your care. So you need to know how to properly clean and sanitize your shampoo bottles. You need to make sure that your tub is not this disgusting, hairy, moldy mess and all of those types of things, cleaning in between dogs and everything that make our job as safe for us and the animals in our care as possible. And then on top of that, you need the actual bathing and grooming skills needed to produce that quality haircut. And then another one that I'm I'm assuming it's not necessarily required, but I think it's important, and that would be an aptitude for customer relations. And it's just helpful. So many groomers, myself included, we go into the field because we prefer the company of animals over people. Right. But we always have to remember there's always a person at the end of every leash. Yes. And they're going to have questions. They're going to need some guidance on what their dog is going to need or their cat or right. whatever the critter is. They're going to We're an need... educator. Yeah. We're, you know, and that's that's the biggest thing you're talking about, all these things, Rachel, as far as knowing anatomy, where anal glands lay in the animal, how, how deep to go, you know, when cleaning the ears. And with that, this knowledge you have to know, you need to know this knowledge to educate, to make sure yeah. mistakes, you know, from the pet parent aren't being made. And they want to know. And that's, I love when people ask questions because that shows me you give a damn. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a hodgepodge of need to know. Yeah. And it's super helpful, too, if you have some kind of good knowledge on canine skin and hair health Mm -hmm. so that you can give those those recommendations to your clients, like you were saying, and just so that you can choose the correct products and techniques to use for each pet you work with, because they are all like snowflakes. One dog is going to have thinner skin than the other and can't handle quite as much brushing without potentially hurting their skin and then other dogs they're gonna need you know the more gentle shampoo because they have allergies and then other dogs are gonna need that super heavy duty shampoo because they're just so greasy nothing else is gonna cut through it and it helps to know where you're starting with that yeah it also helps to know the dog itself you're working with some dogs they don't like being held this way Um, yeah i get you know i get a lot of dogs that they would rather me you know rest there rest their head and the webbing of my finger and my index finger rather than me holding the chin. Sure. That's super common. And so just kind of keeping the animal comfortable. And with that, you need to have the dog on a regular schedule so you can get to know the animal. Yeah. Even my four-weekers, if you think about it like that, I still only see your dog 12 times a year. Yeah. So it's it's all about kind of getting to know the animal and getting sure. to know their body as well as their personality. And with that... I also added in here that like grooming expos are a fantastic resource for continuing education, which I also think is extremely important for all groomers to keep up to date with the most current information and techniques. And you can go to these classes taught by the experts, the people who they've been in the industry longer than I've been alive. They're, They're the people who know what they're doing. This is a continuing education field. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because things are always changing. There's I mean, obviously, there's trends in every industry and everything. And those are nice just to know about as well, because then you can give your clients more of what you're looking they're looking for. But on top of that, there's also just I mean, I remember it was a huge deal a few years ago when somebody I can't even remember who it was that did the study, but somebody decided to swab those 
uh, old shampoo bottles and see what kind of gnarly stuff was growing in there. And it was majorly shocking news across all of the like Facebook groups and everywhere that we groomers like to gaggle for our information and everything. Do you remember when those articles first started coming out about how nasty and contaminated those things could be? Oh, yeah, and how you need to replenish your diluted shampoo every single morning and not just let it sit and fester. Yeah, and you have to sanitize those bottles and you have to do all of these things to make sure. And it's, it's stuff that up until that article came out, nobody even thought of and then we had this new resource and now we know do you, and we do better right exactly do you remember the whole ferminator situation um, oh sure ferminator was all the craze there yes. for the longest time when i started it was ferminator everything uh, now i oh, yeah. don't use a ferminator i have switched to an equi groomer we are not sponsored mm-hmm. by the equi groomer but i will shout that out wholeheartedly i use it on cats i use it on just about any any double coated breed i mean that is a holy grail, and it fits so so nicely in your hand that it doesn't really hurt your your hands and your thumbs. It is a very it. good tool. Yes, yes. Um, so again, that goes with the continuing education of the trade we're in. Absolutely, and there's also a lot of great organizations such as the ISCC, which is the International Society of Canine Cosmetologists, the NDGAA, which is the National Dog Groomers Association of America. And the IPG, which is International Pet Groomers Incorporated. And these are also run by experts in the grooming field. And they do have standards for their members to meet in regards to safety, sanitation, and skills. But it isn't required for any groomer to be a part of these groups, unfortunately. I think we do lack a lot of oversight in our industry because I I guess the government is reluctant to get involved when they don't really know what goes into it. But I feel like we could really use, we could really benefit from some of that oversight if it came from people who actually have spent time in a salon. So I feel like if that oversight came from some of these organizations, the ISCC, the NDGAA, IPG, then we would get a much better, safer, and 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 just relevant understanding or not understanding um, oversight. There'd be a bigger standard. There'd be career. a better standard yeah. for what because so exactly. I get frustrated with the kind of anyone can really call themselves a groomer, right? Anyone can say they're sure. a dog walker, but grooming's more than more skill based than that. Um, and A, sure. I almost feel like it's an insult for someone that thinks they can cut hair to identify as a groomer because it dumbs it down for you, you know, people like us that have created a huge life for this. And our life kind of revolves around this, especially owning a grooming business. Yeah. And that any Jane Doe down the street can say, oh, yeah, I'll shave down your dog for whatever, whatever. And A, the, they, they price gouge so low that it ruins the market. Additionally, it's not safe. Um, you know, when you're talking about yeah. people that don't have any idea what they're doing, especially working with cats, I can I can I can think of three stories off the top of my head of someone that had no business being in the industry that went to bay the cat and put the noose around the neck, and the cat jumped out and snapped the neck and killed the neck the, the cat. And it's little yeah. things like that that can just be oh so detrimental. Um, I know some of the corporate salons they have limited muzzle use, which is not safe at all. Rather than limiting the amount of time allowed for a safety device, you need to be training the people in your salon how to properly use them. 
have courses on how to properly how to properly use these devices in a safe manner that's yeah. not only safe for the dog but for you the people involved yeah. yeah that education is paramount i'm all for you know there needs to be some sort of either licensing um, written exam something to to show that you know what you're doing to be a groomer because yeah. we are working with sharp objects and moving targets and again yep. you know if you're a cat groomer little mistakes you know i mean cats have skin like tissue paper a nick doesn't it's not just yeah. a small nick it's a nickel sized break in the skin and they have just such tender anatomy it's really really easy for animals to get hurt when people that think they know how to groom don't and they find out the hard way that it's not just cutting hair yeah it's not just playing with puppies all day people and i'm not discouraging anyone to learn obviously i'm i'm a better groomer than what i was four years ago and i've learned a lot more but there's a safe way to learn and there's a practical way to learn and i think that the whether it be the usda or some other board come up with a standard to make you know obtaining the skill of pet grooming more standardized right yeah yeah that way you know um we're, we're not discouraging people but that we're saying this is a standard you have to meet the reason the standard is to be met is for the safety of you and the animals you're working with if you cannot meet this standard this is not the industry for you Yeah. So I'm very curious if anyone else has learned anything about the history of grooming as they were learning to groom. Peter, was that part of your education? It definitely wasn't part of mine. (laughs) No, not at all. Um, I don't even like I actually matter of fact, when when we hop off here, I want to kind of Google patents, like who patented the first dog grooming table, who patented the first power dryer. I'm curious about uh, when those patents were issued, if there even are any. Yeah, I think we should also do an episode just kind of on the evolution of grooming tools because yeah. I think that might be oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, tools and equipment and how um, yeah. cage dryers are always changing and velocity dryers and the clipper vac system. If you don't have a clipper yep. vac, you're, you will cut your poodle time in half, I swear to God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love, um, <laughs> I love my clipper vac. Additionally, I want to speak to the audience real quick. Um, If there are any groomers listening that not specifically know anything about the history of dog grooming, but I want to do an episode on tricks of the trade, meaning is there something that you've learned that became a part of your normal grooming regime? Oh, that's a great idea. For example, when I dremel, I always get the feet wet before I dremel. And why? Because it makes it easier to pull the hair back and it softens the nails so that way you're, you're... not really running the risk of getting the coat tied up when the Dremel's spinning. Oh, that's a great trick. Yeah, just an example how um, I used to trim nails. Nails were the first thing I used to trim. (laughs) And Rachel and me met, and now I have adopted her nail trim regime, which is nails are usually the last thing I do. Um, You know, just little, little tricks of the trade. I know another one that Rachel's taught me that I've adopted is squaring the feet and then curving off the edges yes Um, it's so helpful so just any little tricks of the trade that you guys know that you guys would like to share i think that that would be a very very beneficial episode because hell even if you learn two tricks of the trade it was worth listening to and now you have more efficiency within your grooming absolutely well thank you everybody for joining us this week and we'll talk to you next time thanks for tuning in